everyone. Welcome to the Title Now pop-up webinar. I'm Melissa Murphy with the fund, and I am relaunching these webinars after taking a fairly significant break. So thank you for tuning in. And because it's been several months since I hosted a webinar, I thought that I would make sure that all of you know we also have a podcast. I feel very modern and with it. The podcast is also called Title Now, and I generally push the audio from these webinars to the podcast, and we'll be doing that with today's presentation. The podcast is available through all of the typical channels, so sign up and take advantage of all the great content that we have in the podcast. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about cyber fraud. And why cyber fraud? Because it is the number one threat to our industry. It's the number one threat to your business. And despite that reality, I fear that so many people in the closing business have heard about cyber fraud over and over and over again. And I, I know I nag about cyber fraud over and over again. And you've become sort of resigned to it. And you've made minimal gestures toward protecting yourself, perhaps, uh, setting up some procedures. You've made minimal efforts to really keep up to date with what's going on out there in the world of cyber fraud. And you're basically rolling the dice on whether you will be the next victim. And honestly, in today's market, unless you have four or $500,000 set aside in your rainy day fund, you are really taking a chance. So I, I, I feel like because this threat to our industry has evolved over the past year, things have changed in, in who's behind this and how they're, uh, what their business plan is, what their workflow model is. And those changes are not good for us. The criminals have figured out that preying on our industry is pretty darn lucrative and apparently not that hard. So I thought it was a great time to revisit this topic, give you an opportunity to learn more about who is behind this crime how they view our industry, and how they have identified our weak points and how they can get in. So we have two gentlemen with us today that are on the front lines of this war, and yes, it's a war, and they're gonna share their knowledge, expertise, and advice on what the industry and you need to understand and what you need to do to address this threat. So first, I have with me Tom Cronkright. Tom's an attorney in Michigan, but much more importantly than that, Tom is in the closing business. He has a title agency, Sun Title. It's a high volume agency, but he also has a company certified that's in the business of safeguarding money in real estate deals. And through this process, through this life experience, Tom has become one of the real estate industry's leading experts on cyber fraud, and he is committed to solving the largest problem in real estate. And he's so good at this that the Secret Service has partnered with him. 
We have Stephen Doherty here from the Secret Service. And as you can see from his impressive background, <laughs> he's with the Global Investigations Operations Center for the Secret Service. So Tom and Stephen, let's get started. What's happening in the world of cyber fraud, business email fraud? What do we need to know? Stephen, I'll let you take this, but Melissa, thanks for taking the time and just spreading more and more awareness on this topic, you such a nice job, appreciate the tee up. Uh, but Stephen, why don't, why don't you read you in? We've had a very, very active uh, year and a half together and as far as combating BEC or business email compromise and wire fraud. But um, as Melissa mentioned, a little bit more background, but I'm a wire fraud victim as well. So as an attorney, large title agent, I've been through this process, unfortunately, uh, in 2015, cost me nearly $200,000, um, ended up in a high-profile federal trial uh, down in Tampa. So uh, when, when Melissa mentions that I'm, I've become a subject matter expert, I just paid a lot of tuition in this, in this realm that these are courses I did not want to take as a title agent or a lawyer. Uh, I don't remember a cyber fraud and money laundering class in law school. Uh, I remember tax and corporations secure trans, but um, that's it. But Stephen, could, could you maybe read the group into what we're seeing at a high level and how that starts to work its way down into, into real estate? Yes. So where I sit, I sit in a very unique position here. Um, and I'm at Secret Service headquarters in Washington, D.C. Um, I'm in a desk here called our Business Email Compromise Mission Desk, in which my unit gets in pretty much real time active incidents of cyber-enabled financial fraud affecting every industry, right? These guys, our threat actors, are targeting every industry out there where financial transaction is taking place, right? You know, every industry has it, but where is it most visible? It's most visible in the real estate sector, so they've really turned their sights on the real estate sector uh, for the past several years, and they continue to focus on it because there's so many different transactions involved in real estate transactions. You have your closing, you have your mortgage payoff, you have your earnest money deposits. All of these things are being targeted by our threat actors. And it's driven by one thing, the interception of what I call contemporaneous and privileged information, meaning your buyer and seller, your real estate and closing attorney, they would only be the ones you would think would have the information, like the closing disclosure, mortgage payoff documents, um, anything involving the transaction, but that gets intercepted by our bad actors. And then they weaponize that against you guys to get you guys to redirect transfers of funds, send a payment somewhere you shouldn't, uh, stuff like that. Stephen, when you say that they're, they're visible, what, what do you mean that real estate transactions are uniquely visible? Uh, just the information is out there. Do your sort of the real estate sector reporting uh, information. Tom, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot about how much open source information is available for us to go get or for our threat actors to go find. They can use that piece together and then use that to do a very, very targeted attack that's so specific that it fools even the most complex or educated individuals to uh, send their money. Yeah, what, what we've seen, I want to layer onto that. Mostly, if you don't mind, I want two minutes on this because I think the framework of where we are right now creates unique vulnerabilities than when I was hit in 2015 as an agent. So if we think about the multiple listing service, all of our real estate partners that feed us deals that we're codependent on have an obligation to post up activity on the MLS. Well, that MLS 
has contracts with Zillow and Trulian Realtor, typically for money to syndicate or buy that data in real time. So what's interesting is real estate being now the largest asset of people's lives, and there's not a close second given appreciation. I don't know if you guys saw the NICU from Alta this morning, but home prices went up another 15% last year, right? That not only is it the largest asset of people's lives, it's the most visible transaction that we have in the United States. Car purchasing, other high value assets, those are happening between, you know, kind of behind the curtain, but not real estate. Because of the open market process that a listing agent has to conduct to get highest best use or highest best value for a property, then the fraudsters just mine these deal boards and say, oh, it looks like, you know, Melissa's listing your house or Steven's listing his house or I'm listing, a, you know, my whatever happens to be. And then through phishing strategies, these real estate agents have the security of a dumpster, essentially, <laughs> on a super warm day. And they're just exposing us. And I'm just going to say it because, look, not every time, but let's just say in most cases. And then we don't know that all the information that Stephen is saying, contemporaneous and privileged, is being scraped and analyzed overseas to then trick a home buyer. And again, let's talk about home ownership right now. There's no inventory, guys. We fell below 1 million listings last month. There are more licensed real estate agents in the country than there are homes for sale for the first time that they've been tracking inventory levels. Run the math by about a few hundred thousand. We have 3,800 licensed real estate agents in greater Grand Rapids. This morning, we had 900 listings. Okay, so what does it take to buy a part property? I've got an employee right now at Certified. She missed out on three offers. She's been through 12 homes. She was high-fiving me last night, almost crying in a text. Oh my gosh, we got one, right? They're gonna do anything they can to close that. And when they get to the end three weeks from now and are asked to transfer money, if they're not set up for success, that buyer anxiety and that buyer fatigue at a time when we need them more protected, I would argue creates more vulnerability because look, I'm not going through that process again. So I'm gonna do whatever you need to. If you're saying I don't need to bring a check anymore and I gotta wire funds, tell me where to send that wire. And Stephen, I think you'll agree, we saw that over and over and over and continue to every week that we're involved in recovery efforts. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all good. You touched on some really good points. Um, so let's talk about how these compromises are actually occurring. How are they actually getting in and getting this information out? What they do is through multiple different means, either through already uh, having your password for your email account that's already on the dark web through a data breach compromise, um, you guys can actually go to a website, have I been pwned, type in your email address and see if that email address was involved in any of the large scale data breach compromises. Um, they'll take that information, find an old password, try to use that to log into your account. That's one way to do it. Another way they'll attack is through a targeted phishing email where they'll send you an email with a document to click on for some reason. You click on it uh, because you, you think you're supposed to. It brings you to a web page. You type in your email address and password, and boom, our bad actors now have your email address and password. And once they have that information, they go in and they log into your email account. They only log in one time. And generally what they do is they'll go to your settings, 
and they'll set up a setting to auto forward out your email rules and, uh, or sorry, to, they'll set up an email rule to auto forward out any email you receive. So you get an email from your client, a home buyer, uh, saying, hey, I've been told to close. You know, these are the details I have. What do you have? Now our threat actor has all that information and that's how they get it. They only log in once, they set up the email rule and the emails are filtered out that way. Steven, um, yes. I've had a question on the chat for you to, oh, Tom already responded to the question. He is spot on. Uh, yeah. So we have put in the chat, the website that you go to, to see whether or not your email has been compromised and is out there on the dark web. So that's on. Yeah, essentially, essentially it's a website that conglomerates a bunch of different data breaches and, you know, going back for years. So if your email address was involved in one of these, it'll ping that and show you. Um, and that's what's why it's important to really keep your passwords updated um, and use new passwords. Don't repeat passwords because these uh, threat actors, they just see that information and then they just start trying it in different places and they get lucky. Steven, let, let's stay on email accounts because they just seem to be the, the genesis of all things bad when they're compromised. Not only complex passwords, but could you speak a little bit about the importance of email settings, um, analyzing email settings? And I, I think, guys, this if, if the industry is ever going to, to set up lunch and learns this year, it is training our referral partners to identify whether their email accounts have been breached. This is one way. But within the email account, have rules been set up? where their email account is being monitored in real time, they just don't know it, and how do you prevent it? So essentially, like I said, these guys log into your email account just once, they go into your settings, and they set up a, a setting or a filter to auto-forward out all of your emails. That way, and then not only that, they're deleting everything that gets auto-forwarded out, and they can tailor it to be very specific. They can have it say, you know, any email that uses the word wire or account or payment, I want you to filter that out to another email account and then delete it. So they get very targeted with that. Um, what we recommend and what you really should be doing, along with changing your passwords very regularly, you should be, as you change your password every time, go in and check those settings, make sure no unauthorized settings have been set up. Um, you can also actually automate that through different, your IT groups if you have them. Um, your IT groups can even, uh, especially if you're using a suite like Office 365, they can set up a way to monitor all email rules that are set up on your system to prevent unauthorized rules being set up. Um, so that's one thing that's very important. You guys got to check on that just as much as you change your password. If you do review your rules, uh, the, they, you would be able to see um, the rules set up. Most of the time, these are set up as user-generated rules that you can see in those settings. Um, pretty easy. You just can go, like, particularly Outlook, they go up in the gear on the right, click that, drop it down, go to settings, and uh, go to rules and alerts and see if anything's been set up there. Yeah, I mean, specifically any forwarding rules, any auto-delete rules, any rules that scan for keywords and emails, all of those you can see either in Outlook 365 version or, or a desktop or native environment. Also in Google, Yahoo, um, all the different platforms have essentially all these rule settings. And the challenge is if the rule is set up, you could change your password every single day. 
And the fraudster is still moving that communication into other accounts. So you just got to make sure you kick them out of that and then you reset the password and then you enable two-factor or what's called multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication is an additional security setting. So you have your username, you have your password. We use Complex Password Manager here at our or all of our organizations uh, that is LastPass, but there's OnePass, there's, there's these passwords where you create this super secure master password. And then for every site that you link or your email accounts, they create some ridiculous, it's a stupid path, like you'd never know it. Um, and then you enable multi-factor. Multi-factor is one more layer of security that provides a unique code each and every time that you send in uh, a, a request to access the account. Adds a little bit more friction, but again, we're balancing friction with user security and data security. And there, I'm just saying as attorneys, the bar for us is always higher. There's no deference in court when we're standing up and someone's on the other side saying, let me get this straight. You didn't check a box of multi-factor that could have prevented this whole thing because this seems to be the proximate cause of where we're landing here. Either your IOTA account or escrow account was drained or I've got a consumer facing the loss of life savings, right? So I, that's just the brutal truth of it, guys. And then using secure email. Judges really don't understand secure email, uh, but secure email is essentially a rail that provides security layer between one server and another server. So you're sending the email on a more secure basis. What we're talking about is making sure that that destination point isn't compromised. Because if the destination point is compromised, secure email doesn't do any good at all. Okay, the secure email secures it in transit not what they call at rest. So you got to do both. So it seems to me that these additional safeguards and procedures are all a result of the increasing sophistication and increasing um, numbers of attempts for this. So you know, I, I just don't think this is somebody in a gray hoodie in a Starbucks anymore. So who is it that's behind this now? Because hasn't that changed? Uh, she stole my line or she stole our favorite line. Uh, me and oh, Tom uh, used the line that it's uh, that these are not your lone wolf hackers sitting in their grandmom's basement, drinking Mountain Dew and eating Cheetos. Our favorite line. because That's what people think when they think, you know, computer hackers, cyber fraud. But no, it's definitely not. These guys operate in what I refer to as the enterprise business model. It's a top-down business with a C-suite and all set up with people below them to work these. Very complex organizations. They are transnational organized crime organizations. Starts with the C-suite. You have your CEOs, and they call themselves that, Mr. CEO, Mr. Chairman. And they're the ones who kind of dictate how they want to do their attacks. Then they realize, okay, I need somebody to pull off my phishing attack. So they'll go hire somebody to do that. Then they're going to be like, all right, cool. The phishing attack's good. I have the good information. I know when this transaction is going to be done, and I'm going to redirect it. So now it's redirected to another bank account. So now they need to launder that money. They need to get that money to themselves. Doing that, they go and set up a sort of financial director wing that is this expansive network of global money mules that just constantly are transmitting money back and forth. 
Uh, this problem has gotten really bad. Uh, we're seeing a lot of money mules actually be victims of romance scams prior. Um, so they are unwitting money mules. They don't know what they're doing. They're just told by someone they met online to that they're going to receive money and help them for a construction project or something like that. And then afford those funds on. So there's a sprawling network of money mules here. And it gets even more granular. You have sort of an admin team that helps maintain spoof domains that they need to carry out their attacks or monitor, maintain email addresses or uh, pull off other types of fraud, such as unemployment insurance fraud, even ransomware is tied into this now to kind of bolster up the organization. So you really have a robust organization you're dealing with here and they're very complex, they're very efficient. And as they make more money from these frauds, they only get better. Now they can afford more money mules, they can afford better malware. So it's this momentum that they've developed and it's a momentous problem. I know that they're targeting title agents because title agents are receiving and sending money, um, but the, the source of most wire diversions and claims that I am seeing amongst fund members involve that mortgage payoff. And they're intercepting the mortgage payoff when it's being sent to the title agent. Are they sort of hoping that there's an easier way that they can get to that mortgage information and scale it up? Is there, are there, you know, do you think that they're that that's on the horizon? Uh, yes, uh, or it may have already happened in some instances where they're getting in and they're getting pure information fed to them before it reaches its destination. Tom and I are seeing something very similar. We can't speak about specifics, but Tom, if you want to touch on it. You're exactly right, Melissa. I ran a stat, the average open mortgage balance at the beginning of this month was just over $299,000 across the country. Okay, we haven't seen those levels ever. And again, that's because of the accelerated increase in home prices. So a few years ago, mortgage payoff fraud really was, I'm sitting in the real estate agent's account, I'm seeing the closing attorney send over the mortgage payoff between the client. They're, they're sitting somewhere and they're obtaining the original copy of the mortgage payoff. They're taking that PDF, they're using software to doctor that up, and then spoofing typically the, the loan servicer or the lender saying, hey, we had to make a correction, here's an updated payoff. So they were using it as kind of an updated payoff scam. But what they're realizing now is to say, wait a second, what if we could distribute the original payoff into the email system of the party requesting it, and it's fraudulent from the beginning? Like the first one is, has been tampered with. So we saw this early on in the Nashville area midsummer, and then we just saw it in the state of Texas where the fraudsters, again, appear to have compromised the electronic fax account of the title company or title companies using the fax to receive mortgage payoffs. Look, guys, I'm in the industry. 98% of these come over by quote unquote fax, but it's not the fax of 
days past because that was a machine that telephonically printed out something on a piece of paper. We said, we can't do that anymore. We need the fax to be converted to a PDF and an email and then have that sent into our general stream of communication. So they figured out, I call it the note of distribution. They figured out that to your point, Melissa, it's a great phrasing. We can compromise these at scale if we could get access to the eFax, GFI fax maker, it doesn't matter guys, but if they get in there, they can reroute traffic from the originating servicer where the payoff's being sent from, doctor that up and push it right through the same rail down into email. Fascinating scam. And we've seen them do it, unfortunately, at scale as recently as a couple of weeks ago. What I hear you saying is that then it, in those situations, it doesn't matter if I, if the criminal has put um, email forwarding rules in my account or not, because they're, they're in there before it even gets to me. So they're not even diverting any information from my account. They've, you know, they've moved on to a much more sophisticated scheme. That, that's 100% right. And if you look at what, 80% by definition of our disbursement obligations sit at the mortgage payoff? Oh, yeah. We can't adequately insure it. The most insurance you're going to get is $250,000 per. And that's assuming you did 15 things and a COVID test and a blood test to show them that you did <laughs> everything to mitigate the insurance company's risk, which if you did that, you wouldn't have had the fraud. And I think the other thing that we're seeing is you just simply can't trust mortgage payoffs that are coming from in either direction, from the facts right now, from a closing attorney that you've relied upon um, to, to gather that because you're the dispersing agent, not the, you know, rep, not representing the seller. And if you don't mind, I'll touch on this, Melissa. It, it, it comes down to essentially three things. One, you have codified somewhere a trusted list of mortgage payoff information. Treasury templates are the best way to do it. That's stored on your bank server wall. So you start to set up the wire, you type in Bank of America, and all of a sudden a bunch of known trusted accounts pop up. You compare it to what you have, you release the wire. Some people do that on spreadsheets. I've seen people that have had folders of PDFs that check, check, and date. However you do it, history can be a very, very good guide on what is true versus things that are not true uh, when it comes to mortgage payoffs. Uh, calling to verify any new account information is even harder than it was before. It's hard enough to get them to initiate the payoff. It's even harder right now to confirm just general bank account information for a wire, but you have to do it. Or you just send a check, add some per diem, send a check. But that's why it's important to get the mortgage payoff early in the process. So let's just think about mortgage payoff risk. And Melissa, I'm sorry if this is going to breach some underwriting standard. The risk only goes down because the worst case is they made another payment. So let's just get it out in the open. Let's get it before the fraudster has visibility to it. And we can always ask for an update or they'll settle that out with the borrower at the end if for some reason they're radio silent on the verification. Um, know that we're in the process and we will be launching at Certified uh, a more, an insured mortgage payoff database uh, for spring market. So we've, we're in the process of analyzing over 300,000 trusted mortgage payoff records right now. 
uh, and we'll be piloting this in the next two weeks with a group, and then we'll be launching this out. But this is this is the number one threat. This is the threat, guys, that keeps me up at night because I know that any loan, commercial, they're the table stakes could get large very quick where I'm out of business as a title agency in one single wire. Right. We were involved last year in a $22.5 million. Do I have that right, Stephen? 32? Uh, it was about 21 million. $21 million commercial payoff wire recovery that landed in a Money Mules account. One wire. That would have been lights out. So if these do happen to you and there's a very good chance that it may just due to the threat landscape that's out there. The one thing that's extremely important here, guys, is time is money. If you discover this, you need to report it as quickly as you possibly can. There's numerous ways to report it. You can report it through uh, uh, any Secret Service field office. You can just Google secretservice.gov and field offices. Um, you guys, I believe, are all in Florida, right, for the most part? Yes, um, so yes. our Orlando, Tampa, and Miami offices are all very active, very good offices. You can reach out directly to them. Um, or you can also go to FBI's IC3, the IC3.gov. It's the Internet Crime and Complaint Center. You can also report it to there. I'll put the link to the Secret Service field offices in the chat here in a second. But time is money. Tom, I mean, you know, you, you get live streams of victims to you and you get them to me. And how fast have we seen money move within hours? So we need to stress that time is money. Yeah, what, what, used, what used to be touted as, you know, 72 to 96 hours, guys, with the advent of cryptocurrency and just the, the sophistication. So what's happening, what, what, what happens in most cases is that when fraudulent wiring instructions are sent, they're typically sent from somewhere overseas. They're sent from the syndicate running the fraud play. But domestically, they have a series of money mules that either know what they're doing or are wrapped up in something they're not even aware of that take money in and then quickly move it out. They could withdraw it in cashier's checks. They could withdraw it in cash. They could buy gift cards. Most insidious is they move it to crypto wallets. And then those wallets move and then they move out into other fiat currencies in different countries and they can move those funds while the Federal Reserve is closed. So as we're trying to digitize and make it more convenient, these, these rails of moving money that are we would look at as kind of non-traditional, it's just a super highway for them to launder funds and almost completely avoid detection. So if you're two or three days in and you haven't triggered a response from federal law enforcement and notified the banks, I mean, the, to your point, Stephen, we've seen money move within hours. But we've also had instances where the money mule is in the bank branch. We notified the bank through our efforts and they were stopped cold, like right in. I love stories like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, but it's, it's harder. It's harder to reclaim the money after it's been stolen because they understand the gravity of how quickly they have to move the funds. So let me go back and, and let's try to make this really clear to um, our audience. The, the moment that you realize that either a mortgage payoff has been diverted or perhaps the seller's proceeds have been the, diverted, you contact a Secret Service field office, you email the IC3 website and, and file a notification. 
you must, I assume, contact your sending bank and the receiving bank. Who do you ask to speak to at both the sending bank and the receiving bank? So, so before you answer, Stephen, here's the point of this. What he's about to say needs to be done in advance. These relationships in this pathway needs to be grooved before you have an incident. Because what we found is that when crisis hits, people freeze and you're burning daylight. That could mean the difference between something coming back and everything being lost. So I, I didn't mean to step on you there, Stephen, but what we're about to say is do not wait. This playbook should be should be set in the organization before there's an incident. Yeah. Yeah. So Melissa, to your question, um, what the way I, I prioritize it is first, you should actually contact your financial institution uh, that sent the wire. Um, they generally will on your behalf send a wire recall or a swift message that it was due to a fraudulent uh, means or a compromise. Um, if you contact the receiving bank directly, if you're not a client for them, oftentimes they won't help you because you're not their client or customer. So that's just a caveat there. But immediately contact your finance institution and tell them what happens and see if they can put a wire recall in. Next step is to contact federal law enforcement or local law enforcement, really whatever you're comfortable with. Um, but what Tom's point was, was great is you guys need to have an incident response plan in place before these happen. You need to have you need to know who to call to help you. Uh, local law enforcement can help with this, state law enforcement can help, and federal law enforcement. So it's whoever you're, you're comfortable with, who you developed a relationship with. Um, you can just Google, obviously I provide the Secret Service field offices link. You can also Google FBI field offices. Um, HSI Homeland Security also plays in this space. Um, and IC3.gov is just a place to report that these happened, even if there's an attempt. Um, report an attempt. If you stop it, please report it to IC3.gov because what that does is it now gives us uh, meat to go after because there's still the bank account that was used to divert the funds or the spoofed email that was used to send the attack email. And we can go after that as well. So please, uh, the biggest steps are to have an incident response plan in place where you know who to, who to contact and how. And two, report everything you can for everything you see, because not only does it protect yourself, it protects the entire community. Yeah, what, what, I've, what I've been most surprised by, well, not most surprised, but one of the surprising things, Steve and I have been involved in well over 100 recoveries last year for 35, 36 million to victims. Um, and I say that because each one has a little uniqueness to it. One thing that seems to be bubbling up is if you're banking with a, a credit union, a community bank, maybe a smaller regional bank, it's, you might be surprised and you don't want to be surprised when you're going through it, that they don't have a fraud desk. They don't have somebody that understands how to send an alert through the Fed wire system or notify the receiving bank, which is typically a money center bank. So it's leaving a small bank. I mean, nine times out of 10, it's hitting one of the big guys, right? because of the coordination they have globally. Right. So if they don't have their own incident, wire fraud, communication, all those channels, I mean, I've had to educate bank presidents on what an indemnification and hold harmless looks like going to a money center bank to allow the funds to come back to a victim. And it's just, that surprises me as a lawyer. So just don't be surprised. You run this, sit down with your banker, 
and make sure you know exactly who to call the information that they will uh, that they will require. And if they in turn have the rails set up to protect you and get the documentation that the receiving bank is going to need to put a suspension on the account, freeze the movement of money, and hopefully work that back to you or your customer. Uh, and Melissa, it's worth noting, it's not just the disbursement wires. Yes, those are a direct hit to the closing attorneys, but it's the risk that buyers face when the closing attorney is spooked. They haven't been educated. They haven't been engaged on this issue. They haven't received wiring instructions. And all of a sudden at the closing table, we realize that there's no certified check in hand because their life savings was wired a few days ago. And I'm gonna say this, it does not matter if you tell the people, we don't receive wires, we only receive certified checks. We have seen time and time again, the fraudster redirecting through communication, the requirement that nope, can't have a check now because I've got an Omicron outbreak or I've, something's going on. I need your wire and I need your wire today. It just, we, we've seen it, unfortunately. It does seem to me that reverting to what we call the old fashioned way of conducting business has some role here, has some advantages here. Um, some of the questions on the chat uh, have to deal with these new uh, fax systems that do come straight to your computer versus more of a phone line that's sitting on the desk behind you, Tom, looks like a could be a fax machine. I'm sure it's not. But is it better to use an old fashioned fax machine to um, send and receive things? The problem is a buyer, the normal consumer out there doesn't have a fax machine sitting on their desk. If they have a fax number, it's something tied to their computer. But certainly for the purpose of receiving a payoff from um, a lender, an old-fashioned fax machine seems like it might give you some level of protection. And then in dealing with, um, for example, buyers that need information about where to send their cash to at closing, yeah, I don't know what the average home ownership is now, but you know it's five to seven years. Maybe people don't do this on a daily basis the way we do. And so they're not sophisticated and educated about this cyber fraud. And rather than communicating with them via email, it seems like a reliable form of communication is the good old fashioned phone. Do you agree? Is, is that something, a real practical piece of advice? Any precaution you can take, uh, just one thing sort of we want to touch upon, and Tom, I'll let you kind of run with this, but, you know, customers, this is not a muscle memory transaction for them. And just to put it out there, you know, everybody puts disclaimers at the bottom of their email saying, you know, wire fraud is real, blah, blah. Guess what, guys? People don't read anything below your signature line in your email. They read the content. That's it. They're not reading and paying attention to that. So you really have to engage your clients and customers on a very sort of vigorous basis. And Tom, you agree that you should do it upfront and throughout the entire process. Let them know this is the process, fraud exists, this is how we combat it. Tom? 
we didn't create this threat, but the threat's not going away, it's only getting worse. So what do we do in response? My argument has been to the industry, to my staff, to our community here in, in West Michigan primarily, is that this isn't gonna happen on our watch. And if it does happen, we as transaction participants, as advisors, lending, real estate, title and closing, that we've done everything we could. We met the standard of care as it's being defined in the courts, unfortunately, federal and state, as to what success looks like for a, for a consumer to be protected. Because the challenge is, Melissa, we're not driving them to the bank. We're not over their shoulder when they're open up online banking. A lot of them don't even have, they're banking with an e-bank and there's no bank branches. That's the other realization with this economy we're in. So what we do, let me shed light on it. What we do is we don't, we're not in a good fund state. So I don't have to take wires in. If I put my title owner hat on, I don't have to take wires in for EMD or cash to close. And I don't have to send wires out pursuant to the state of Michigan. But what I need to do is educate the consumer that this threat is out there. It can strike at any point and we're going to set you up for success. So the first thing we do is when we issue the title commitment, we send our wiring instructions along with a wire fraud notice to every consumer. We, we send it through certified. You may say, I'm gonna send it through secure email. However you send it, just make sure that you have confirmation that they're the ones that actually received it. Because in a vacuum, you can say, look, no wires only checks, got it, great. We'll see you at closing and then they get tricked after. And it's simply not enough. The other thing that we've done is we have, and then we educate them closing scheduled. Hey, remember, if you are going to wire, only those instructions that were sent earlier can be trusted. With regard to enrolling the real estate agents and the referral partners, this is the key. This is where you can multiply the message and multiply this yourself in this conversation. Because guess who they trust? I should, well, I'm not an attorney state. They trust the real estate agent because they're typically the one driving the traffic, right? You're being fed off them. Everyone is kind of beholden or codependent on the real estate agent. There's an opportunity there that at the agency formation, this knowledge transfer takes place. So through notices, we've provided what we call a day zero document that our real estate agents put in dot loop and DocuSign that we have the customer sign because they might start working with a buyer six weeks ago, trying to find houses. We've been involved in wire fraud recoveries, guys, where the purchase agreement wasn't even countersigned by the seller and the entire cash to close amount was wired to a fraudster by the buyer. Purchase agreement wasn't even consummated yet. That's how early they can get approached. So educating the real estate agent, you know, showing them what you're doing to protect the consumer, to protect them, and then getting them as part of the lexicon of how they do their business, wire fraud becomes this conversational piece, not something that we hide behind or act like it's not happening. That, in my opinion, is how you drive sustainable engagement. You can't do it all yourself. Interesting. I feel like this has been an incredible source of information. Uh, so thank you to Tom and Stephen for that. I think that we might have raised some more some questions that we have not been able to answer and those have been reflected in some of the chat questions that have been posted 
And so what I am going to try to do along with my team is look at the issues and questions created by the chat, review the information that Tom and Stephen have shared with us, um, try to make some organizational sense to it, and try to push something out to fund members to update them on um, the best way to deal with this. Nothing about what you do when you realize there's been a crime is really different than what's on our website right now, fund members. We have the IC3 website. Um, the Secret Service connection is something that's a little bit new. Um, and so we're definitely gonna add that kind of information uh, to our webpage, Stephen, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, but and you can also, on, Melissa, on that website, you can actually go back into investigations and you, there's actually, there's numerous pieces, there's PDFs, there's documents that uh, help prepare for a cyber incident and give updated information on cyber stuff uh, that you can definitely pull down and, and link to on your website. We will definitely look into that. So with that, I am going to uh, thank Tom and Stephen again. Um, I'm going to thank all of you 190 people that participated in this webinar. Thank you so much for your time and attention. Uh, don't forget, we're going to push this out on the podcast. And so that's another way you can listen to this webinar again uh, in the information. And then again, we will try to make some sense of the comments and information that has been posted in the chats and push that out to you. And as I always do when I wrap up one of these is thank you, above all, thank you for your support of the fund.